Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Juan Gold Show. Today, I have a very special guest. Uh, we have Jameson Lop in the house. He's a man that needs no introduction. He is an OG, a true OG. He has created some of the most important cypherpunk self-custody works uh, with Lop.net. He's got a huge uh, set of resources on that website. And he's the co-founder of Casa Hotel, which has certainly broken ground in terms of self-custody, multi-sig, user experience, and inheritance planning. So um, I'm very happy and proud to have Lop on this episode of the Juan Galt Show with BitcoinNews.com and their support. And um, yeah, we get into a full range of discussions about the the whole spectrum of self-custody. We go from why you need it at all and why you should do it and why not just stay on a you know coinbase i mean blackrock thinks it's fine why shouldn't you right and uh, we go all the way to the edges of self-custody past multi-sig and inheritance solutions into what is being developed with cashew and fetty mints in uh, community and collaborative custody models which is uh, pretty interesting and complex. So, yeah, I mean, I I love this show. I think it's going to be an epic, and uh, I hope you enjoy it too. Let us know what you think, and see you in the next one. Welcome, Jameson Love, to the show. Uh, thank you for coming on. I can't wait to to get into some of these topics. And it's it's so fitting that we're going to be talking about self-custody because at the same time as all this sort of upheaval we've been talking about is going down, this, the, the European Union with, with Lagarde uh, is talking about doing a CBDC. There's all these stories about banks uh, refusing cash withdrawals to customers unless they give the bank a reason, like, why do you need the cash, right? So, um, you know, this is, you know, the, the CBDCs let these bank extend, extend their, their reach and their control over money so that they can micromanage the collapse uh, and keep people from doing a run on the banks and, and be able to punish their enemies and reward their friends with your money. So uh, Bitcoin really is the path out. But in order to do to use Bitcoin properly, we need to learn how to self-custody. So, Jameson, it's great to have you. Welcome to the show. Happy to be here. So, Lop, uh, I'm a big fan of your work. Uh, I really appreciate uh, a lot of what you've done. Uh, Lop.net is an incredible resource for anybody that's looking to, you know, take the deep dive uh, on the Bitcoin rabbit hole, right? Chase that orange rabbit down the, all, all this down. content and all this, all this really interesting information and cyberpunk philosophy and all these tools that we have available to us. So, Lop, you have a really great resource there. And you also co-founded Casa, uh, Casa Huddle, which is, uh, in my opinion, really breaking ground in terms of self-custody. You know, you've solved some significant issues with, um, you know, the user experience of self-custody, especially at higher levels of wealth. And you've even uh, come up with a fairly strong solution for inheritance, which is a very uh, tricky problem uh, in, in the Bitcoin world. Uh, so I'm, I'm definitely looking forward to 
to getting into that. Is there anything anything you want to, let's say, announce or say before we kind of jump into some of the big questions that we have for you today? The big announcement for today is I'm now a wizard. Hooray! <laughs> Are you minting an these Jameson? No, uh, I'm quite ambivalent about the whole NFT thing. Uh, technically, I have uh, control of, I think, three NFTs now. Two of them were gifted to me because they were in, made in my likeness. I've only ever purchased one NFT. And uh, that was actually something I'll probably write a blog post about because it was a, an internet meme that was... Uh, early 2000s like pre-bitcoin meme but the meme itself is kind of an nft so it's kind of a uh, a meta nft if you will which which nft is that what, what meme is it uh so there's this meme of the it's a seven-legged spider uh and it's it's basically this uh, email thread back and forth where a a guy gets a an email from his utility company claiming that he owes them money. And this was like in 2003 or 2004 or something. And he basically said, here, let me pay you with this really crappy MS paint drawing of a spider that I made. And it's kind of a, it's a back and forth story where uh, sounds like an NFT for sure. (laughs) Yeah. People who are, I I think grew up on the early internet might recognize the meme, but I I think, you know, these days it's not as popular. Right. I just had to Google it. I think I had seen it at some point, but yeah, that's, uh, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the kind of stuff that's going on. And I mean, let's, let's start off with um, a story that was a bit controversial and just to get it off, off of the the table, uh, Casa Huddle recently, um, announced that they're implementing um, multi-sig for Ethereum, right? seemed like a lot of people had expectations that Casa was a Bitcoin-only or a Bitcoin-first company. And so when they launched this announcement, it kind of triggered an uproar of some sorts. Um, so I have to ask you, Jameson Lop, you know, in the, in the theme of uh, seven-legged spider NFTs, do you personally like Ethereum? I mean, I'm still not that interested in Ethereum. Uh, I have used it for things. Like I said, I I, I guess I, I own two NFTs on Ethereum, but I, I only purchased one and the other was gifted to me. Um, you know, the vast majority of the functionality that's being built on it, uh, it's, it's just not interesting to me because I'm not a trader. I'm not like a a degen person who's trying to find get rich quick schemes. Um, <laughs> it, but you know, my personal opinion of it is kind of irrelevant when it comes to business decisions. Uh, it's also not my first rodeo. I think a lot of people probably weren't even around when I was actually working on not only Ethereum, but also uh, Ripple and Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin Gold and, and all of these different altcoins back in the day at Bitco. Uh, when I started at Bitco in 2015, it it was Bitcoin only. Um, and really, it was it was a function of market demand of, you know, either you decide that you only service uh, Bitcoin stuff and you, you limit your addressable market there, or you try to expand and you know have more offerings to your clients. So 
the the thing that really becomes irksome at, at a business level is when you you hear from your sales and marketing people about all of the deals that you're losing because you don't offer all of the services that your potential clients want. So that's basically what it comes down to. You know, of course, people say, well, oh, it's a slippery slope and now you're going to end up supporting everything. You know, th this is, of course, a gray area of trying to decide which things will actually have a positive return on investment for the company. And, you know, there's obviously a very long tail distribution of coins and tokens and stuff out there. And uh, it certainly becomes untenable at, at some point to be able to support them all because there is not only startup costs, but ongoing maintenance costs, knowledge costs, so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, moving from Bitcoin to now also Ethereum, uh, where there's a ton of activity and demand is it became a no-brainer for us because we saw the volume of requests and lost deals continuing to increase over the past few years. So I know it's difficult for some people to understand that, you know, there's CASA, the business, and then the various decisions that have to go into that. And then there's me personally. And, you know, I am not the dictator of CASA. There's a lot more going uh, into CASA than just my personal opinions. Right. And uh, how has uh, well, what can you tell us about the the result of the decision uh, from a revenue perspective? And any insights you can share on that? You know, like have a lot of people taken up Casa on this uh, Ethereum multisig, which I I know you guys were working on back in the day, but there was no real clear standard uh, for multisig and Ethereum. So it seems like you guys have actually brought a very strong product to market. Um, how has the market reacted to that? Right. Well, I think we only really launched it like a week or so ago. So definitely a bit early to say, you know, ask me again in a year and we'll see. Uh, it was a you know year long effort of research and development uh, to actually get it to the point where we were pleased with the quality, where we felt like we could offer a secure enough solution. And kind of to what you mentioned, we technically supported i think single sig ethereum for maybe the first few months uh, after casa's launch and we ended up removing it uh, that was back in 2018 or so and one of the big reasons around that was just that there wasn't a you know, sufficient standard for multi-sig that we were confident in um you know, we didn't want to write our own smart contracts. In general, one of the things that we abide by is, you know, we don't want to roll our own crypto. We don't want to do anything that's highly novel because there is, you know, various and numerous strength in numbers that applies to many different aspects of security. Uh, most people think of that with Bitcoin in context of the cryptography and the math that is securing the network. But it's also true for security models in general. If you're using a security architecture that is implemented and, and used by many people and is securing large amounts of value, then just like you know, open source projects in general, the, the more people that are a part of that project, the more eyes that are on it, the more scrutiny it has then the less likely that there's some hidden vulnerability that could be catastrophic. 
Uh, point being that, uh, you know, we didn't want to roll our own smart contract. That was a process I had gone through at BitGo back in 2016, and it took us basically a year and three different uh, third-party audits of that contract with a, a number every time, you know, multiple critical issues would come up. It was a really scary process. And, um, and so, you know, what have we done? Well, you know, we continued observing the ecosystem and we saw that, you know, Gnosis safe and their contracts had developed a multi-year history of not having security vulnerabilities and of securing you know, billions, if not tens of billions of dollars worth of assets so we felt like, you know, implementing a solution on top of Gnosis Safe was uh, sufficiently safe enough for our standards. Gotcha. That's, um, yeah, that's really interesting. And, and you know, it, it really goes to show that uh, Bitcoin has the best wallets. It has the, the best security. You know, Ethereum is so complex and there's so much action and so much money in Ethereum. But the fact that they haven't had very strong multi-sig offerings until you know fairly recently i mean uh i think the fact that you guys are jumping on on this technology is a good you know testament to that but um in, when i when i look at bitcoin and compared it to all these other coins the the quality of wallets is just not even comparable bitcoin has very strong architecture and infrastructure on that front um with, with this with this multi-sig offering do you see like are we going to have more than just Ethereum on multi-sig going forward? Like with Casa, like we're going to have like, you know, we're going to end up doing, uh, you know, things like, uh, I don't know, NFTs or, or maybe liquid level, you know, volcano bonds. Or like, are we going to just be self-custodying all kinds of stuff in multi-sig in the future? There's no technical limitations. Um, you know, Gnosis Safe itself supports all ERC-20 tokens and probably a number of the other uh, token standards as well. So it, it, it really becomes more of a question of, once again, ROI of what is worth our time and engineering effort to add support for and then, you know, continue ongoing maintenance for. I'll say, you know, this is a function of demand and the by far most demanded thing is stable coins. And I, I don't think that should be a surprise to anyone. Um, there of course has been some demand for NFTs, but uh, not nearly as much as stable coins. And, you know, since technically the contract supports any tokens, you could use your, your multi-signature safe that you launch through CASA to manage anything that you want through the Gnosis Safe UI, uh, you know we have no control over that, and that's by design. That's also how you would recover your funds if Casa went poof and ceased to exist, because that's you know a core tenet of our architecture is we don't want any single points of failure, including our own company. So you know it's always possible to route around Casa to be able to access you know other tokens or functionality that uh, we don't support directly through our mobile app right and um you know i also want to point out that i mean i don't particularly like ethereum either i think most it's mostly ponzi schemes and pyramid schemes and uh <laughs> like it's 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 a very sketchy space there's very few 
highly valuable things that I see in it. Nevertheless, as, as somebody that also worked kind of teaching people and helping people secure their funds, I much rather that they hold their shit coins securely than that they don't, you know? So um, if you're going to have crypto at all, whatever that means, it might as well be done under good security standards so that the day that you do decide to, let's say, buy Bitcoin and hold it long term, you have those skills to to secure your property. So this is kind of why I'm kind of sympathetic to, to the decision by Cass and not just business wise, but I think adoption wise, people should be understanding multisig and, and, and really integrating these systems into their lives. Um, however, Ethereum has a lot of really weird scams, right? They have a lot of uh, sketchy, like fake token scams and other things that you don't really see in Bitcoin because Bitcoin is not, let's say, as complex. Um, can you tell us, is there any story that you can share? You know, have you guys had any weird issues with niche Ethereum scams uh, so far? Uh, well, it's definitely too early uh, to have any stories for you, but it is something that we're aware of. And so, you know, this is, for example, one of the reasons why I would generally be against us allowing anyone to add any arbitrary token they want, at least through the Casa app. Because like you said, like one of the many ways that people get scammed in this ecosystem is uh, people create a token that looks you know, very similar, if not almost exactly like a real legitimate project, and then uh, you know, trick you. Uh, a lot of the stuff that does go on in the system uh, ends up being various types of kind of like uh, phishing attacks or just general uh, tricking the humans into interacting with contracts in ways that aren't safe. So, you know, limiting what people can do is, is actually been a, another core piece of CASA's architecture for a long time. Is there's a lot of advanced functionality that we consciously don't offer for Bitcoin because we believe that the, you know, the potential value that can be gained is actually offset by the, the risks that a you know, less advanced user uh, might shoot themselves in the foot by applying something incorrectly. So that the same thing is going to happen, you know, across the board when we are adding any sort of new feature. So you know, trying to kind of save people from themselves is a major a part of what we're doing in our offering. And you know, I'm sure that people are going to get scammed at some point. You know, you you can only help people so much um, when it comes to you know, preventing them from sending their money places that they shouldn't. But there are there's certainly some low-hanging fruit for stuff that, that we can try to keep out of the platform. And kind of going back to what you were saying earlier, it's not just the, the business decision, but even from a, a higher level perspective, like one of the things that has really pained me greatly is when I see people who have, you know, you could call it a diverse portfolio or, you know, people who own a lot of different altcoins end up deciding to keep all of their assets with a trusted third party instead of implementing self-custody because there aren't, you know, self-custody solutions that basically will support everything in their portfolio. So like it's a, it's a, so much easier to just, you know, leave your funds on an exchange that already supports everything that you've bought uh, than it is to possibly have to go out and find multiple different wallets to self-custody, you know, 
tokens for different networks and so on and so forth. So and that's another thing that we're trying to push back against. And like I said, the, the thing that has pained me is when I see people deciding not to self-custody their Bitcoin because they also own these other tokens and they you know, obviously for simplicity want to keep everything managed in the same place if possible. And so if that desire for convenience leads people to choosing third-party custody over self-custody, you know, that's when I start getting upset uh, because this, this trade-off between convenience and security is, is basically the, the battle that I've been fighting for the past decade. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, that, I think that makes sense. And that's, that's, that's kind of why I'm a supporter of this this effort uh, on, on Casa's front because, yeah, I mean, what I see in the ground is a lot of people are in Ethereum, a lot of people like to play with these tokens and, you know, we might as well teach them how to take self-custody so they're ready when they need to actually, you know, put on some more, let's say, risk controlled and, and secure assets on them. Um, now, I, I also have to ask you this. Um, there, we, we have this this stories about the, the El Salvador bonds, you know, uh, volcano bonds. I believe a, a billion dollar were, dollars were raised. There's thoughts about putting them on liquid. I'm not exactly sure where what the cutting edge of that is right now, but is there any efforts or plans to support securities of these sort or bonds um, in CASA? Like, do you, are you guys looking at that side of the market and, and considering launching, a, a you know, integrating that? As far as I know, we have had zero requests for that stuff. So that, I think that kind of answers your question. You know, we go by uh, market demand. Uh, now, of course, you know, since those bonds haven't launched yet, uh, that would also keep the demand pretty low. Um, but, you know, we're, we're not against it. You know, um, one of the, one of the many things that I've been canceled for over the years was actually you know being involved in a security token, and and so I, I think it should be clear to people who have been paying attention that I'm not anti STO either. Um, I I think that this is well th this is something that I kind of grapple with from a you know anarcho capitalistic standpoint of on one hand you know i think that you know people should be free to basically do whatever they want and issue whatever tokens they want and you know deal with the consequences of the market but on the other hand we we have seen that there are certainly a lot of problems with the fact just that the vast majority of tokens that get issued they're not very well defined. Uh, essentially, they they provide no rights to token holders, or you know, they don't even really try to describe uh, very well what they are offering to the token holders. Uh, you know, one one of the big issues around that, of course, is often with sort of token distribution and lockups, uh, you know, tokenomics, if you will, um, that are often not very transparent, and in many cases gamed uh, to you know, favor the issuers and often done in ways that are kind of opaque and so that people don't necessarily know what they're buying. And then, of course, there's also governance issues that uh, it may not be clear that, you know, even if the attributes of the token look good right now, that they may be changed in ways that you don't anticipate. So, 
you know, there's a reason why securities law exists and why there's so many countless pages of regulations that basically describe, you know, how you should be managing a company that has equity that is private or publicly traded. And I think there's certainly some lessons to be learned that could be pulled in uh, related to that and just tokens in general and you know, giving people a better idea of what the hell it is that they're actually buying. So, you know, that's kind of why I'm in favor of supporting securities tokens, because while you may be against all the regulatory stuff, it can certainly be a pain. At the very least, you know, a security token is following uh, a lot more best practices when it comes to actually giving or describing the uh, rights of the token holder and what they can expect. Yeah, yeah. From from an income perspective, in theory, they everybody should be free to issue their their coins. But on the other hand, fraud is also a violation of the prop of the NAP, right? So we what we see is a a ton of fraud. Um, on this this side of the space, not just in Bitcoin crypto, but also like pre crypto with all these Ponzi schemes that have uh, have been very popular before this era. But um, but yeah, no, I mean, I think I, I like the idea of being able to hold a bond like an Apple bond or a Tesla bond in paper in self custody and not take let's say the T, you know, like the 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 risks of like um, fake bonds on the market that. Uh, that that have been reported by by uh, I think the, the the CEO of Overstock sort of had some big stories about these sort of revealing that there's a ton of fraud and and and, and fake bonds uh, or fake uh, securities in these brokerages right that they weren't necessarily synced and so I'd rather just have my own and make sure that I I own it right and that's that's kind of a cool aspect so um, hopefully we can see that something like that in the future um, yeah I mean but, you know, uh, these things obviously. You're not going to be able to get the same type of security model that you'd get with a completely permissionless token. Um, You know, they're always going to have a central issuer, but you can at least make some improvements on the existing system by having that that level of transparency, you know, the auditability aspect. Yeah, it does seem like the the system could be improved. You know, I mean, again, people are used to using Tether now. You know, the they use Tether all the time. It functions like a physical asset in the sense that, or, or like a self custodied asset, right? You have it on your wallet. You can send it. You can receive it. But it also has this layer of administration that's kind of invisible, and it's certainly centralized and managed by a third party. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, right? A kind of federal bank, right? Uh, with Tether. And so I think people are already, in a way, used to the, what this technology can do to improve the experience of that. It's just a matter of, like, you know, implementing actual securities, like integrating this technology with securities laws, which, you know, maybe El Salvador will be the one that leads that. That's, um, we'll see. We'll see how that plays out. Yeah. I mean, uh, that is actually probably my, my highest volume use of the Ethereum network is Tether and USDC. And, you know, sure, you know, they are centralized issuers. It's, I, I wouldn't recommend, you know, using them to store long-term value. But I tell you, I, I would highly prefer, and I do highly prefer using these 
Ethereum-based stable coins over having to go to my bank and do wire transfers any day of the week. Like it saves me so much time. Um, you know, s- sending a stable coin, you know, basically takes less than 60 seconds. Whereas if I'm going to go do a wire transfer, I have to fill out so much paperwork and often have to get on a phone call with people and get, you know, jump through so many hoops of security bullshit. You know, it can easily take me half an hour to an hour <laughs> Uh, depending on you know how complicated the wire transfer is, so you know from a utilitarian standpoint, I I am certainly a fan of uh, stablecoins as you know uh, medium of exchange. Yeah, that's that's uh, the crypto dollar. The the stablecoin is is uh, it's a topic we've we've talked about here before. I agree, they're very useful, um, and they're going to continue to be quite useful uh, going forward. Um, I, I would love to keep talking about that, but I think there's so many self-custody topics that we definitely need to dig into that I, I kind of want to bring it back to that and maybe bring it back to Bitcoin and, and ask you just like a very general big picture question, which is, you know, why why should people take self-custody at all? You know, why not just trust Coinbase like BlackRock is doing and Fidelity is going to be doing, right? Why not just put your money in Coinbase and avoid all the hassle of self-custody? Well, really, it's because you're you're giving up some of the most valuable properties of this ecosystem. Um, you know, if everybody is using a trusted third party to manage their money, they no longer have permissionless money. Uh, they're just going back to a banking model, and the bank may arbitrarily decide that they don't want you to use that money anymore. So there's no shortage of examples of people posting on social media showing that they've gotten locked out of their exchange account or whatever other custodian they're using. And, you know, sometimes it's because the custodian didn't like some aspect of a transaction they were trying to send or receive. Uh, Sometimes, it's because of some other, you know, AML KYC uh, issue that they got flagged. Um, other times, it could just be, you know, some suspicious activity of you know trying to log into your account, you know, through Tor or VPN or who knows what. Um, so th- there's innumerable things that can go wrong that may not even be your fault that can get you locked out of these third-party accounts. And the whole point of, you know, Bitcoin is that as long as you abide by the rules of the protocol, you know, there is no authority that can say no to you. And so, you know, the only way that you can get into a a sovereign position where you're not asking permission to use your own money is to actually have control of those private keys. And, you know, you know, this is why CASA exists is we, because we believe that you know, private keys are an empowering technology and it's going to be you know, more than just Bitcoin um, and more than just assets. You know, we, we believe that private keys are going to give people more power and control over their own identity and you know, how they interact with the world in a variety of different ways over the long run. Uh, this is you know, there's been a promise of you know cryptography 
helping people, of course, for decades now. And this is what the, the cypherpunk movement was all about. It's taken us a long time to get here. And I think it's still going to be a long time uh, before we really get to the point where this is a, a mainstream thing. But you know, that goal is certainly in sight. But once again, coming back to you know, convenience versus security, part of the problem is that the default for most people coming into this ecosystem is that they're, they're basically getting onboarded through trusted third parties. And you know, defaults are very sticky. So when someone comes in through a trusted third party, you know, they're probably using a web app or a mobile app or something, and it probably seems like almost any other banking experience that they're used to, and they're probably okay with that. But in order to prevent the system as a whole from becoming more centralized as we onboard billions of people, we, we need to get more people into self-custody. So you know, how do we do that? I really think that the most obvious way and, and you know, not necessarily the easiest, but we, we basically have to route around these third parties. Like I'm, I'm not particularly bullish on being able to convince people to withdraw from uh, trusted third parties. Rather, I think we need to be setting people up so that the default is self-custody. And an example of that um, is, is basically when people are receiving Bitcoin directly as a result of you know, some good or service that they're selling. Like they're, they're working and they're receiving that Bitcoin directly. I think that when that is how people are getting onboarded to the ecosystem, it's much more likely that they will then immediately be in a position of self-custody. But you know, there, there's obviously a lot of questions around exactly uh, you know how we we optimize that. Yeah, and shout out to Bull Bitcoin in Canada who's doing great work on this front. You know, you send them money, they send you Bitcoin, and there's very little time in which you're trusting them with your money, and they by default you know kind of force you to give them a Bitcoin address, and 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 thus you have to set up your wallet. They educate you on 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 how to set up your wallet and they have a, a good amount of work on that front. So I think that that kind of model or the model that uh, Swan uh, was following to some degree where you could actually do your D DCA out into your wallet. I do also believe that those are, that's the future of, of exchanges. And it's, you know, as we see more of these custodians fall, you know, and as we see companies like FTX try to do a 2.0 scam, you know, make sure they, they can try and get more of your Bitcoin. Uh, I think we're going to see, Hopefully, we, we should see more of these kind of companies show up and, and take take the main stage. Um, now, okay, so people, you know, but today, you know, on average, people will join something like Coinbase or get on Kraken or go to Binance and they'll buy their Bitcoin and then they'll, maybe, maybe somebody will convince them to get their money out and they, they realize they should. And so the first thing they'll do is usually they'll download a mobile app, right? And they'll get 12 words, right? And they'll... You know, hopefully the app will warn them not to take a screenshot of the 12 words, to write it on paper, to, you know, stash it underneath their mattress. Um, is there any other, let's say, pro tips for first, like, let's say, noob users or, or early users that are not maybe ready for multi-sig, but they do want to take self-custody? Um, other than not taking a picture or not digitizing their 12 words, what else uh, might you recommend? 
Well, the most important thing to do you know, when you're, you're setting up, especially your first wallet, is uh, to actually test the recovery aspect of it. So I, I think what goes wrong in a number of cases, and I've helped a number of people um, you know, with recovery situations, uh, though not always successfully, um, is that you know, they may set up that wallet and they may write down those words, but they don't double check and triple check and make sure that the words are actually correct or that the, you know, the, the wallet can be reconstituted. So, you know, when you're, when you're especially dealing with any non-trivial amount of value, if you, if you think you're going to be putting more than, you know, pocket money into a, a wallet, you know, when you create that wallet, you should make a small deposit into it and then just literally delete it, <laughs> delete everything about that wallet and then uh, recreate it and you know, import that uh, seed phrase and make sure that the money shows up like that. That step is something that I think I don't, I don't think I've ever seen a wallet that actually tells you to do that. <laughs> And, and that has, you know, that, that's a foot gun that a lot of people have run into because, you know, if you, you write down the words wrong or, you know, some people try to get cute and creative with how they actually write down the words and do the backup and whatever and, uh, and end up screwing something up. You know, it's just important to have that uh, sanity check that you know, your, your data is actually going to work when you need it. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of theoretical ways in which, let's say, when, when you're more paranoid, uh, like I think you and I are, uh, there's a lot of ways in which you can think, like you can come up with ways things could fail. But I think empirically speaking, it you know, it sounds like this is one where people actually fall, uh, where they maybe, you know, again, they get cute, they... They, they write the words, but they don't they don't define the order in which the words are placed. And so they then they have 12 words, but no idea what order they should go in. Um, that's one that I've seen um, or where, yeah, maybe they just misspell a word. And now you have 12 words, one of which could be wrong. So you got to go into some brute forcing and like check them against the dictionary and so on. So, yes, yeah, so that sounds like a good a good tip. But I, I assume that you're referring to uh, testing the seed against a mobile phone. Uh, or do you suggest this be done on, on desktop wallets as well? Because uh, there's some different thread models there, right? Like I believe, let's say, uh, key, key loggers, which is one of the big scary, uh, you know, cybersecurity threats. Like a key logger is more likely to infect a, a desktop computer than a mobile phone, right? Absolutely. I mean, the, the optimal scenario would be, of course, that you're using a dedicated hardware device and you're you're wiping that device and then uh, inputting the seed phrase into it. But, you know, if you haven't invested that 50 or hundred dollars or whatever for a dedicated hardware device, then there, there is a question of attack surface and, you know, mobile phone tends to be safer. Uh, it's the mobile operating systems are a bit more clamped down and are you know less likely to have key loggers and malware and so on and so forth. It's not impossible, but you know, if you're, if your phone isn't rooted, it's a lot less likely. So it's certainly, I would say safer to be you know, tapping or typing your seed phrase into a mobile app than it is to be doing it on like a laptop or desktop where it's 
much larger attack surface, much easier for there to be some sort of malicious software running. Absolutely. And uh, when it comes to mobile wallets, you know, before we get into horror wallets, which is also a very, very important topic, um, there's this question of open source versus closed source and or even just source availability. Um, there's a you know company that I'm a big fan of called WalletScrutiny.com. It's a, it's a project that ranks uh, mobile uh, wallets, Bitcoin wallets in particular, uh, and checks whether their source is available and deterministically reproducible. That means that you can download the software from, let's say, GitHub, compile the APK file that you would install on your phone, and that APK file would be the same file that you would get from Google, which would would be it seems like the minimum standard that 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 the industry needs to reach, such that they can actually benefit from open source. Um, what are your thoughts on these? I know I know that CAS is still uh, closed source, but I, do I believe that, that it's not obfuscated? Um, uh, so it's like if you open up the wrapper of the APK, you can see the code, and it's not like intentionally hidden or anything like that. Uh, but what what are your thoughts on this aspect of of the industry? Right. I mean, there are very few companies that go to that level. Uh, I don't know. I'm sure it's single digit percentage of, of wallets out there that have you know, reproducible builds. And, um, you know, it's it's better than nothing. It's not panacea. It's. Um, I think an issue with open source is once again, it's a network based problem of like how many eyes are actually on that project. So you know, one thing that I've found really interesting in the space more recently, especially is that there's a number of wallets out there that are literally one developer. Like even if it's open source, if there is only one developer behind the project, there's no peer review. Uh, you know that that one person is deciding all of the code that goes into it. So, once again, there's a question of: Are there any other eyes that are actually on that project, checking to make sure that there's no malicious code going into it? Because, you know, if you have a a wallet project that's only run by one developer, sure they could be doing the reproducible builds and so on and so forth. But if nobody's looking at the source code, it doesn't really matter, right? It's so it's it's a complicated issue, and I think very very few people bother to you know kind of like dig into the GitHub repositories and actually look at the different attributes of these projects. So yeah, Casa, our mobile apps are not open source. Our our kind of philosophy behind this is that we build on open source and we make it very easy for people to instead of try to you know reproduce and verify our software what they can do is actually use a number of different other open source software projects recreate their wallet on there and in a much more user-friendly fashion be able to verify that you know the casa software is doing exactly the same thing that you know all of the other open source multi-sig software is doing um, you know, we encourage people to do that, you know, set up a watch only wallet essentially, because you get a similar level of integrity assurances. Like if we were trying to screw around, for example, with any of the, the address generation stuff, 
then that would become very immediately uh, apparent because you'd get different addresses in the different wallets. Also, it's a tenet of our design that we don't have control over aspects of the transactions that are created. So, you know, when a CASA user is actually signing transactions, they are doing that on software and hardware that CASA has no control over. Uh, this is kind of a pain for us uh, in terms of managing the user experience and the compatibility and um, you know, making sure that everything works, especially over long periods of time, because you know, it's a it's a system with many different moving parts, but it takes power, you know, out away from Casa, where we we don't have the ability to screw around with you know, the user's verification of their transaction details, since you know we don't have control over cold card or Trezor or Ledger or whatever. Uh, that's another important aspect of verification that I think it's a lot more, it's, well, it's far more user-friendly for you know, someone to be verifying transaction details on a hardware device screen than it is to be you know, asking them to look at code. Right. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, you know, with the multi-seed side of, of Casa, yeah, you're plugging in your hardware wallet, you're getting uh, an email with a link that lets you basically connect through, let's say, Con Trezor Connect or through a kind of interface for cold card. And then you're compiling these transactions with the hardware wallet, which means the, 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 the seed words or the private key is not leaving the hardware device. It's just like a signed message, you know, like uh, that, that's being transmitted to a computer. So, yeah, you guys, Casa, in a sense, never has um, uh, any kind of choke point or control point over that, that transaction construction. Um, but okay, so just to kind of finish up on that question of, of open source, because yeah, you're right, like a lot of open source projects are basically abandoned. In fact, I've been hearing that Coinomy is essentially abandoned and, and that's alarming because Coinomy is a very popular mobile wallet in the in the crypto space. Uh, it was supposed to be open source for a while and then it went closed source. So anyway, just watch out for that. But um, do you, uh, you know, at what point, like, like it seems like open source is an, an essential aspect of, of self-custody, nevertheless, and again, you know, you, you've sort of recognized that, um, you know, because it, a lot of these wallets, like, even if they give you to the 12 words, you don't, you don't know if they're just keeping a copy, right? Um, and, and, and I understand that that can't happen with the multi-sig offering of Casa, but it certainly could with the, with the single sig. And it, it, it's probably happening with a lot of these wallets that are single sig and closed source that are fairly popular. Um, I mean, do you think that this is a, a, a direction that the, that the industry should move into? Uh, it seems like it's a very tricky thing, you know, like Samurai Wallet finally implemented deterministic builds after years of people pestering them about it. Um, you're right, only about five wallets in this space actually managed to meet this bar. But like without that bar, you know, you are essentially trusting the single SIG wallet provider, right? Yeah, Um even with the, the open source and verifiability aspects, like it's still possible for stuff to go wrong. I mean, you know, Bitcoin Core is the gold standard, I think, uh, you know, when it comes to, you know, open source high security projects. 
And even they have had vulnerabilities from time to time, you know, even having you know, dozens, if not hundreds of, of eyes on the project, things can go wrong. So, you know, part of my problem, I would say with, you know, using a single signature wallet, whether it's on the mobile phone or desktop or whatever, is that, you know, even if you're, maintaining great security 99.9% of the time, it's still possible that some sort of bug or vulnerability can get introduced that, that can then cause, you know, keys to leak or can cause um, transactions to be malformed or, you know, created maliciously or so on and so forth. So, you know, it is, a single point of failure by default, you know, regardless of whether or not it's open source or closed source or whatever. Um, it's just, as I've kind of been trying to allude to, it's very, very difficult to quantify what the, the like level of security that something being open source actually provides. And that's because, you know, the security is basically a function of the quality and quantity of developers that are actively working on that project. Okay, but um, but I mean, it is nevertheless preferable to closed source. I think I think because closed source, you're just sort of trusting the third party. And again, this doesn't apply necessarily to the multi-sig side of things with Casa because of of, of the variety of tools you guys support in hardware wallets. Um, but um, yeah, but well, yeah well, like well, I, I guess, and this will probably be controversial, but I I would actually say that uh, Ledger, for example, closed source project is probably far more secure than many of the single developer open source projects. And the reason why I say that is because Ledger has a ton of employees; they have a lot of engineers and a lot of eyes you know, on their own code. Now it's true, the rest of the world cannot audit and verify that code. But compare that to a single developer project that nobody's even looking at, is what I'm saying. Uh, that's, that's why it can be difficult, you know, to quantify exactly what the level of security of these things is, you know, in terms of the sort of integrity and quality of the code itself. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. I think that's a good argument. I never really heard that argument, but yeah, you're right. Like, so single SIG mobile wallets are, you know, they're, they're arguably better than a sketchy exchange, you know, but uh, especially done right, you know, and, and, and again, you, of the ones like, you know, I think people should check out this, this website, walletscrutiny.com which actually goes through that, but it, you're right. Like if there's one developer on that wallet, then, how secure is it? Is anybody looking at it? So let, let's go into the next step of security or custody. Maybe somebody has had their coin in this one of these wallets, and they're listening to this, and they're like, "Okay, I guess I got to move to a hardware wallet." Um, and and we're you know we're looking at this story of Ledger, right? Which you know just had this the most ridiculous sort of blowing up of their brand that I've seen in recent years, right? Where they first of all they started doing this marketing where it's like, hey, just put your ledger on your on your chain, a little a literal chain on your neck. And uh, you know, like that meme with the Indian guy with like a huge favor flavor flag clock of Bitcoin gold, you know, like fifty ounces of gold, right? And and 
so that that was ridiculous. But then also they they implemented this thing where basically they could withdraw key material from the ledger through an internet connection and set up like this sort of sharded backup thing with three other companies. Um, what are your thoughts on 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 Ledger specifically, and then maybe um, how to choose our wallets more broadly? Like how how do we make this decision? Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear that Ledger's various faux pas have been a function of them trying to push more mainstream. And I actually, I, I understand why they've gone down the path of this uh, particular um, seed recovery solution. Because, you know, they're not trying to create a security model for someone who has, you know, millions of dollars um, that they need to secure in a sovereign way. Uh, you know, they're specifically, you know, this is targeting the, the sort of end of the bell curve of the sort of the laggard mainstream adopters who may have... 50 or maybe a few hundred dollars, maybe even a few thousand dollars worth of assets. And, and, you know, people who aren't dedicating a lot of time and effort into their security, because really if you have dedicated the 50 or hundred dollars to buy a hardware device to manage your keys, you know, you're already probably better off than 99% of people in the space having you know taken self custody and taken those keys off of internet connected devices um, at that point the the biggest threat to your your keys is actually yourself and it's, it's basically just screwing up and, and losing access to those private keys so from that perspective I think it makes sense that that ledger has you know, prioritized creating a user friendly recovery solution because you know, quite honestly, people suck at backing up data. Um, it doesn't matter what data it is. It doesn't even matter how technical you are. Like a lot of technical people lose data all the time because it's just a boring IT administrative task to do you know, data backups and especially to check on them regularly to make sure that they still actually work. So, you know, while there's certainly issues, I think, um, with how they did it, like it's not you know nation state resistant by any means. Um, I think it is better than not having a recovery uh, option for a lot of those people, for those those target audience, those people who they're not necessarily securing their life savings. So I you know, I think that it will come in handy. It probably will save a number of people from losing access to their private keys. It's not something that I would use myself, but uh, we'll see. Uh, they, I think their biggest screw up was really around the marketing of it. And um, then, you know, you can argue the minutia of whether or not they should have put more effort into or done a better job of, of selecting the actual key custodians for that stuff. But, you know, they, uh, they published uh, a white paper, I think in the past week and, and I looked at it and, and, you know, from a technical perspective, it looks pretty solid to me. It is, it's like the, the quality and caliber of work that I've come to expect from Ledger. Okay. And, and do you believe that, um, does this open up a door for hackers to maybe like, you know, like, is this a kind of 
back door um, or because, you know, if you can actually remotely with remove or, or make a copy of, of data, even if it's well sharded, even if it's like, does this not provide a path for, let's say, hackers to, you know, backwards engineer, reverse engineer ledgers, you know, door, you know, remote door in? Um, I don't know. I guess that's my concern. Like, I, I, I feel like I can't, again, like, and I'm probably on that side of the bell curve of like, you know, way too paranoid to to give that kind of power to a hardware device. Um, but um, is that a concern that you think they've addressed sufficiently? I think the, well, the main problem in this case is the fact that we can't verify, you know, the code that is actually running on the ledger device. So like I said, I read their white paper and I guess the caveat is if the code running on the ledger is doing what their white paper details as the, the architecture being, then, you know, it's a, it's a pretty secure setup, but, kind of what you're getting at is uh, if there are any code issues that introduce some sort of vulnerability where that security architecture can be bypassed to extract the key material, then of course, yes, that's a problematic backdoor. So it is possible that you know these changes could introduce a backdoor we don't really have a way of verifying that this is this is the trust model that you are getting into you know, when you buy a ledger and it has always been the trust model that you're getting into when you buy a ledger even even before they have offered this uh, backup functionality the only thing that i can tell you like from a, a verifiability perspective is that there are there are no API calls, at least that we know of, that we can find that you know that's possible for us as developers to make to the ledger device to request the extraction of a seed phrase. Um, that doesn't mean that you know there's there's not any way that you could try to glitch uh, the API or the device to try to extract that. Uh, the only thing that we know for sure is that no one has succeeded in doing it so far. Uh, and, you know, Ledger has been around for a number of years and they have, you know, they've withstood the test of time. They, I would say, have one of, if not you know, the most uh, proficient team is when it comes to hardware security. You know, Ledger Donjon breaks a lot of other companies' devices in this space. And uh, as far as I'm aware, nobody has broken theirs. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's that's very fair. You know, they do they do very, uh, very deep work on uh, on trying to break other hardware wallets. Um, you know, I, I think that they also announced after this controversy that they were going to be open sourcing or, or like fast tracking their path towards open source. And they're, they're a big enough company that they could probably actually draw enough eyeballs for that to be, you know, properly peer reviewed. So I do hope that they take that path, you know, like I, I can't recommend Ledger going forward until I see significant changes on that front, but uh, you're right. They, they do seem to have a very strong team. So hopefully they'll turn the ship around. Uh, and so on that topic of horror wallets, um, how do you suggest, let's say the average person uh, that's ready like to move to the next level of security? Let's say they're not the, they're not, you know, let's say the, the boomer 
crypto friendly class that is okay that will buy a ledger so that they can play with crypto but also they will kyc themselves into ledger to make sure their backup is secure right like for people that are not that user right um how do you go about choosing uh, a hardware wallet that let's say takes you to the next level of security you know because the options that we have left are you know obviously Tresor, I think Tresor, Tresor Model T, and then you have the cold card uh, um, wallets. And then there's like six other ones that are kind of like, you know, not that popular. I think Bit, Bybit is one of them. I mean, no, it's not Bybit. That's an exchange. But anyway, there's a, there's like, like a 10 more hardware wallets in the market. Um, how do you think about those and uh, how should people think about those hardware wallets? Uh, yeah, well, I think there's way more than 10. Uh, it just depends on how far out on the, uh, the long tail you're willing to go. I think there's definitely a lot of like really low quality, crappy Chinese products out there that have not been very well tested. And in many cases, they're basically just old Android phones, I think, uh, probably not even running up to date Android software. Um, so, you know, going back to that, that recurring theme that one of the important aspects of security is safety and numbers. Uh, you don't want to go too far out on the, the curve of adoption. It is definitely safer to stick with one of these devices that has been uh, sold at a high volume of level and therefore, you know, has been subject to more scrutiny than other devices. So I wouldn't, you know, go outside of the big name brands. Then after that, there's kind of the question of uh, usability and, you know, how, how much effort or how technical are you as a user and you know, what do you need from a, a UX perspective? I do lean towards preferring people using devices that don't require USB cables. So, um, you know, for example, you could use cold card with, as uh, NFC. Uh, that is pretty convenient, though there's not a ton of wallet software that supports it yet. Um, it's on our to-do list, certainly to add NFC support. We already support cold card uh, just from a like raw, you know, PSBT file transfer perspective. Um, I'm also f a fan of really any of the devices that support um, animated QR code standard for transferring. So I know Blockstream Jade, uh, Passport, um, Spectre DIY, though almost nobody has that. Um, and, and really, you know, that's, the reason why I say that is because what we've seen from a, a support perspective is that you know, when you're having to plug devices into like laptops and desktops, it's just a much more complicated software stack where there's a lot more things that can go wrong and, and basically cause the user experience to have more friction. Whereas if you can literally just tap your device or point your device uh, at your screen and, and do that data transfer. There's uh, far fewer things that can go wrong just from a user experience perspective. 
Very cool. Yeah, I haven't played with these uh, these passport special QR codes, but I'm gonna definitely uh, check that out. And I do have a Jade that I bought ages ago that I'm gonna I'm gonna plug in and start playing with. Uh, Jade is one of these companies or one of these products that has been kind of rising in the ranks, right? I mean, for a long tre- time, Tresor had the lead, and then Cold Car really kind of I think took the lead as far as like the most paranoid Bitcoin hardware wallet. And then Ledger has always been in the game, more of crypto friendly sort of uh, wallet but now jade is in the game in the kind of like bitcoin only but plus liquid side of the market what do you what do you think about jade as a hard wallet uh, specifically um i don't uh, i haven't heard too much conversation about it but it does seem to be you know firmly in the top tier at this point yeah i mean it's user friendly um I would say similar to trezor though they do have the camera which is a plus um I'll say I was I was definitely disappointed with Ledger Stacks, uh, which I think they have they aren't even shipping yet. But I was sad that Ledger Stacks didn't even they didn't bother to put uh, a camera into that device. So I was like, you know, you you really you're losing out on a better user experience with that. Uh, Cold Card, um, their Q1, I believe, which is supposed to start shipping by the end of the year is also going to have a uh, camera though. I know that they're not a fan of the QR code standard that all of these other devices are following. So you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. I, they're going to want to implement their own. Uh, could be tricky, I think to get uh, a lot of other wallet software to add support for whatever they come up with, unless it's significantly better. Um, I kind of, yeah, I kind of see, I think from a security perspective, Jade is probably similar to uh, Trezor in the sense that um, I think there was actually a physical extraction vulnerability reported recently on it uh, because I think, you know, neither of them actually have secure elements. So that is something that people might want to think about of, you know, whether or not you are, are worried about a sophisticated physical attacker being able to extract key material from the device. You know, I think that is a pretty edge case thing to worry about these days. It's not, it's not something that we've ever actually seen happen in real life. These tend to be more, you know, theoretical laboratory-based attacks. But, you know, it is something that is possible. Absolutely. Um, quick uh, side question. How are you doing for time? Oh, I'm good. Uh, I think I have several hours. Awesome. Awesome. Because we could definitely, I could definitely ask you. <laughs> we could definitely go for several hours. There's so many things I want to, I want to talk about. And, I, and this is a topic that's so, it's so complex and so deep that, um, and so interesting to people, you know, that I think uh, it almost merits it. But um, all right. So let's, let's go a little further. So, yeah, the, the physical thread model really changes um, the, your setup as well, because um, if you don't consider uh, physical th- attacks, let's say home invasion from a sophisticated thief that, you know, knows about crypto or let's say you're you're it, it, unless you're worried about like the feds raiding you or something like that, which to be fair, there are some people who really do need to worry about that and that are not necessarily bad people. Right. I mean. I'll, I'll bring up the example of Tate, which is, of course, you know, being now accused of 
significant crimes and maybe he is guilty i don't know but you know how would somebody like tate how do you think somebody like tate should actually secure their bitcoin you know i don't know if he had good enough counsel you know we we're talking last week that he had like four coins four bitcoins on binance and was it his pocket money or his hodl and he just had really bad advisors uh but he probably is concerned of a you know some uh a sketchy raid from uh, whatever Eastern East, East European countries in and, um, and they would probably get this hardware wallets and then have to do something about it. So um, maybe, maybe go on the, on the, on, onto that, talk a little bit about that story or, or somebody of that level of prominence and aggro, how should somebody at that level of, let's say popular controversy and government enemies handle their Bitcoin security given that they do have, let's say, physical security as a part of their threat model? Yeah, basically nation-state resistance. Um, there's, of course, a number of ways that you could go, and you know, you can get really creative uh, with any of this stuff. But you know, the short version is you need to have your keys distributed. So... This is something that we help our clients kind of uh, grapple with because everybody has you know, different uh, threat models and different thresholds of convenience versus security that they're willing to manage and deal with. And at the extreme, which we certainly have some clients do, the extreme of you know, sovereignty and security is that you have a multi-key setup where no threshold of keys exists within one jurisdiction or one set of jurisdictions that are cooperative with each other. So essentially uh, putting your keys in different countries that do not cooperate with each other. So you know, we have clients who literally have to get on a plane if they you know, want to access their extreme cold storage. Now, you can create, of course, any number of different wallets that you want. And so most people who have that level of extreme cold storage, that's not their only wallet. They probably have three, four, five, six different wallets that have different key setups that have you know, higher levels of convenience for spending um, you know, basically have your, your, your checking account and your savings account and your pocket money. Uh, for example, uh, that would be like you know, pocket money is your single signature hot wallet checking account. Maybe that's like a two of three wallet where you can access both keys within a matter of minutes or less than an hour. And then your, uh, savings account is your super cold storage where it might take hours, if not even days to be able to access a sufficient threshold of key material to sign a transaction for. But then, you know, you, you can of course go even deeper and, and try to decide exactly what level of coercion you're even uh, willing to, uh, to try to protect against. So, you know, there are ways, for example, where you could have this, call it like jurisdictional arbitrage or distribution and not have um, 
an extreme level of inconvenience if you're at the the level where you either have semi-trusted friends or family or perhaps you have employees who are you know scattered around the world and in that case you know you can have the key material in countries that don't uh, cooperate with each other but you can be able to request signatures from those people of course then you have to develop you know various secure communications protocols and authentication procedures and that can get pretty tricky especially these days as you know deep fake stuff is becoming uh, more problematic yeah i was going to ask you about ai i know you're uh, you've been playing with ai as well um but uh we i fear if we get into ai we'll we'll, we'll steer too far from from bitcoin self custody but yeah i think uh you know deep fakes and 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 kyc authentication is increasingly tricky in the age of artificial intelligence so uh, that's going to be fantastically entertaining to watch and also quite risky. You know, you really have to to have that ship under control. Um, so, okay. So, yeah, I mean, some, you know, highly creative James Bond level, multi, you know, jurisdictional, multi-sig sort of uh, almost institutional grade security uh, for that level of aggro. Uh, now, let's, let's roll that back into something a little bit more... Um, let's say likely for a lot of people, you know, people that, that are per perhaps concerned with physical attacks, you know, there may, maybe they have a hardware wallet and a 12 word seed and they, their seed is stashed, you know, buried in, in a, some sort of metal device engraved deep in underneath their dog's dog house or something. But then they're afraid that, that somebody gets to it or maybe that, that they, that they get their treasure and then, you know, they'll go into a lab and try to extract the seed and then they'll get their Bitcoin. So they'll do this 25th word thing, right? And the 25th word is like a feature that I believe Trezor, um, you know, led the charge with, which lets you add an extra word on your seed. So it adds an extra kind of piece of cryptographic material to the seed, uh, to the to the private key. And so your, your 12 words are now no longer sufficient to regenerate the public addresses of that wallet, uh, which in theory protects you from a physical attack, but in practice, it also makes your backups fragile to loss because it, now you have to now you have to securely store this 25th word and where are you going to store it? I mean, obviously, you're not going to store it necessarily with your hardware wallet because otherwise, why create it in the first place? Or you're not going to store it with your other 12 words because if you're afraid of physical theft, and they get to it, they're going to get the 25th word. So you got to store it somewhere else. You know, what do you think of this, this, this particular security feature? Because I think it's actually very problematic. I think it's more, I've seen more people lose their money to it than I've seen people successfully defend their Bitcoin with it. Um, and, and to do it right, you know, you kind of have to spread that, that 25th word around enough so that you don't lose it. What, what do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, you basically just summed it up is that I've seen a lot of people lose money as a result of problems with the 25th word as well. And, um, you know, I, I track the the other side of this where um, all of the physical attacks that do happen, that at least that we hear about, I track. And uh, the vast majority of the time, those attacks are successful. 
this is kind of related and, and touches on uh, another issue of you know decoy wallets uh, because you, you can use this feature, for example, to have a decoy wallet. Um, and the short version is we just don't have enough data. Like we, there are zero cases that anyone is aware of where someone has been attacked and has successfully either used a decoy wallet to you know, pay off the attacker and save the rest of their stash or has been attacked and was saved because they just, they had a, you know, a 25th word somewhere else um, that was inaccessible. So you know, part of it is just sort of uh, an issue of uh, the amount of, of incidents that we have to go off of and, you know, comparing that to the, the number of people that we have seen anecdotally lose access to their money because this is a more fragile setup. So I certainly don't recommend using 24, 25th word um, option for people. Now, like we said, uh, Trezor and I think Jade as well have potential physical extraction vulnerabilities, and this is how you mitigate that. But also, as I said earlier, those physical extraction vulnerabilities, as far as we are aware, have never actually been used in real life. So this is why security is so tricky is because there's a million things that can go wrong. But unless you're talking about what the actual frequency is, you know, when you're creating a sort of a threat model, um, when you're looking at all the different things that can go wrong, you just you have to prioritize based on the likelihood and so I think this is why a lot of people kind of get frozen up is we, we talk about security uh, and I can only imagine like if a, a, a sort of normal person or a non-technical person comes in, they, they listen to the security experts talking about all of these edge cases. It can, it can be incredibly scary uh, because often we don't talk about, you know, what's the actual likelihood of the edge case happening. And um <laughs> At the end of the day, nothing is perfectly secure, right? So there's always a potential for something to go wrong. And I think that can cause people to freeze up and say, well, I don't want to bother with this self-custody stuff because I'm never going to be able to have a perfect setup. But the the way that I try to describe it very simply, like the different threat models, is that if you are using a trusted third party to custody your funds. The, the number of things that can go wrong, like all of the different vulnerabilities and threats to your money are the same and actually greater than the number of things that can go wrong if you self-custody. So, so basically, the, the sort of uh, total scope or, or map of, of possible vulnerabilities in self-custody is a subset of the total number of vulnerabilities of third-party custody. Because basically, a third-party that is doing custody, you know, they are doing quote unquote self custody uh, on behalf of other people. So all the things that can go wrong with the keys can go wrong on their end, but also 
you have a whole new class of things that can go wrong with basically insider attacks. And, um, you know, the, basically the people who you're trusting to run the infrastructure uh, that is essentially a black box. You have no idea, you know, what security practices they're actually doing behind the scenes. And even if they told you, you probably can't verify it. So you know, when you take self-custody, you can at least know, you know what the security practices are that are being put in place around those keys. And you can verify them because you're probably doing it yourself. Um, that's kind of the best way that I've been able to, to kind of you know, quantify the, the scope and the threats of like, why is it worth the effort of, of trying to put yourself into a self-custody setup? You know, one of the ways that I framed it when I was when I was teaching this stuff to, to consulting clients was that there's there's uh, one of the big threats is that you build yourself a maze around your money that is so complex that you get lost in it and you effectively you know screw yourself. So that's 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 one aspect. That's like the the the, the extreme paranoia side of it. But on the other hand, you know, trusting your money to a to a third party has um, is basically the worst case scenario on the other end from an overall security perspective um yeah so okay let, let's let's get into hardware wallet uh supply chain attacks because this is an area where let's say the critics of hardware wallets are they, they've they've kind of established somewhat of a beachhead so to speak so um what what can you tell us about supply chain attacks in terms of you know let's say Tresor or cold card and how can people have uh, some certainty? Like what protocols have been implemented to give people certainty that, that their hardware hasn't been manipulated? Well, that's certainly tricky, um, but I will also preface it by saying that I'm not aware of any incidents in which a supply chain between the actual manufacturer of a hardware device and the end user ended up being compromised. Um, more frequently, what we see happening is someone buys a bunch of treasures or ledgers and initializes them and then resells them on like eBay or Amazon or whatever and basically hopes that whoever receives them is um, naive enough that they don't understand that you know the seed phrase that's on that device is already in possession by someone else and they just start, you know, using it and deposit money on it. Uh, we've also seen, you know, counterfeit devices. Um, I think mainly treasure counterfeit devices. And, but those, that's always, once again, like people buying not directly from the manufacturer, either buying off a secondhand uh, website um, or, I think there may have even been uh, some like conferences where, where people were, you know, giving or selling uh, fake devices. So, you know, as long as you're buying directly from the manufacturer website, you're, you're in a pretty good position. And the, you know, the devices themselves, they will at least, you know, validate, you know, when you're, when you're updating the firmware on them, you know, that firmware has to be signed with a private key that ostensibly is only in the control of the manufacturer. 
And uh, if it's not, the device is going to throw up some major warnings and usually won't even let you install the firmware unless you put it into a very special developer mode. Other than that, though, um, you know, I'm not a hardware security guy, but once again, at the end of the day, nothing is perfectly secure and it's practically impossible for even you know security experts to verify the integrity of hardware and you know this is something that has come up a few times over the years especially just like you know silicon chips are so amazingly complicated that it's possible to hide you know malicious pathways you know inside of the transistors for example that you know no one will notice for a long time if ever it's kind of you know similar problems with with really any hardware and that is why for example we talk about you know simplicity of if you are putting a private key on a desktop or a laptop just the the overall complexity of that entire system of hardware and software is so huge that there's just a ton of potential vulnerabilities if you're putting your key onto a mobile phone, it's still huge, but it's you know probably an order of magnitude less than laptops and desktops. And then finally, you get to these dedicated uh, key manager devices, which are extremely minimal in terms of their complexity. But even then, you know, none of us, except maybe, maybe like Ledger Dungeon, uh, but almost nobody is actually you know, inspecting these devices kind of at a, a chip level. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah, and so the, the hardware wallets are kind of like the, the simplest of the devices. And, um, you know, this, this brings us to one of the, and the simplicity is good for security in general, right? So this brings us to one of the one of the aspects of Casa that I'm actually a big fan of. Um, so let's say you know somebody has had these twelve words in a hardware wallet; they're good, but they want to level up. Maybe they have maybe their Bitcoin stack just grew ten uh, x after a bull market, and they're you know they're ready to level up. Uh, one of the cool features about with Casa is that you can have the two of three multi sig setup, um, which is the gold uh, account. I believe it's like one hundred and twenty dollars a year. Um, and that, and you can have that set up in, in a kind of custom setup where you have, you can have two hardware wallets plus the mobile key. Um, and that's, um, that's, that's really nice because the, the UX of Casas is very good. And then you have these two hardware wallets and then you can actually have, uh, you can have a hardware wallet diversification, right? So you have, you know, maybe cold card and then and the Tresor and, um, and then, so if one of them fails and you find out about it, you'll have a little bit of time to react, right. And, and switch it up. Um, so yeah, I guess I just wanted to compliment you guys on that. Cause I think that's a big, that's a big piece of, of the innovation that you guys have put forward. It lets you, lets you not only benefit from the, the hard, the open source security of, of these hardware devices, but also lets you hedge against them by using multiple of them. Um, so maybe you can talk a little bit about that and, and, um, you know, tell us, I don't know if, there, if you have any comments on, on that particular issue. Yeah. So multi-vendor multi-sig is, I, I really think the only way to go. If you're, if you're going to the extremes of setting up multi-sig 
and you're trying to eliminate single points of failure, then it's pretty dumb to put all of the keys on devices that are controlled by a single entity. And it's not just about supply chain attacks. Like I said, I'm not aware of any actual supply chain attacks happening thus far. Um, It is still a theoretical vulnerability. But what we've seen over the years is that there are there are a lot of things that can go wrong other than just a supply chain attack uh, when it comes to you know using these hardware devices with your Bitcoin wallet. Uh, sometimes there's just sort of compatibility issues. Uh, sometimes you know software or, or firmware updates can go out that create a compatibility issue. And it can take a while to get fixed, and so you know you may you know temporarily not be able to use that device. Um, sometimes there's edge cases we've run into where you know a device may not be able to handle a certain transaction because it's overly complex, especially when you're doing multi-sig and you're trying to spend you know a hundred plus UTXOs. Uh, some of these devices kind of choke on. Uh, you know, larger data payloads, um, especially with PSBTs. Now, um, you know, you can easily end up with PSBTs that are hundreds of kilobytes uh, and, you know, can cause problems with these dedicated devices because they are very simple. They are designed to be minimalistic. Um, I did a, a bit of research back in 2020 where I kind of stress tested a bunch of devices with complicated multi-sigs and complicated transactions. And uh, I'm actually going to be redoing that uh, hopefully in the next few months here with some of the newer devices and, and using some of the newer Bitcoin scripting and just, you know, trying to see, you know, how, how well is the, the hardware device ecosystem doing for that? But like I said, it's single points of failure. Um, and I don't want to focus on any one, given thing that can go wrong because as we've we've basically covered there's a ton of things that can go wrong and since you don't know what thing is going to go wrong um, having more diversity amongst your keys and how they're managed just gives you more flexibility and, and often more uh, escape hatches so that if something goes wrong Hopefully, it's only going to affect one of your keys, and that one key, if you're in a multi-sig, won't be a single point of failure. So this, this sort of resiliency, it, it protects people from you know, the complexity of the, the entire ecosystem that you're dealing with, both at a software and hardware level, and it protects people from themselves and you know, making mistakes is um, that's what I think you and I have both seen over the years, especially people who are using single, single signature setups, you can very easily screw something up. And that one mistake that you made, you know, just because you were naive or you weren't paying attention when you did it can result in catastrophic loss. And that is the type of, of problem that I think is a major inhibitor to mainstream adoption, or at least mainstream adoption of self-custody, which is what I think we should all be going for, is that simply the ability for someone to be their own bank is not enough. 
It's that we need for people to be confident that they can be their own bank and that they don't have to expend a ton of their time and resources uh, managing that aspect of their lives. Yeah, there's there's a question of sovereignty, which which is, uh, you know, let's say power or control over uh, your jurisdiction. Right. So you, you let's say in this case, we're talking about your private keys. You have power and control over them in theory, but then there's also like that aspect of responsibility. Like, are you actually able to respond to threats? Are you, are you competent enough to handle it? And do you feel confident in that? Um, and, and that, that I think is the area where, where sovereignty starts to get interestingly tricky because you, you do have to get to a certain level of competence to actually achieve any kind of sovereignty. So somebody mentioned uh, recently to me uh, something about security, a concept in security, which I thought was really interesting. He said, um, with security, the best that a, a security system can do is alert you to a threat, right? Some sort of breach, some sort of uh, attack, somebody trying to, you know, jump over your lawn or, or like your the wall around your house, whatever. And that, and that alerts you to give you time to respond to that threat and respond appropriately, Right. So when it comes to Bitcoin security, especially now that we're entering in, we're talking about a, a multi-sig setups with Casa uh, or multi-sig in general as well. Um, how do you think people should respond? You know, um, let's say maybe maybe describe the two main offerings that you guys have, uh, two, two of three and three of five, I believe. And then talk to us about maybe the, the ways in which people are you should respond to any kind of breach of a key or, or compromise and what product process you guys uh, have in place for that. Right. So, you know, that's, I would say one of the main deficiencies of, well, Bitcoin in general, like really any of these crypto assets, um, but especially single signature setups is that, there is no responding to a threat. By the time the threat has compromised your setup, your money's gone and there's no recourse, right? That's, uh, that's one of the reasons why, why people are you know, afraid of, of taking on the responsibility is because you basically have to front load all of the security. Um, there's, there's no reactive security, at least for single signature uh, setups. Now, I will say that the OpVault proposal would change that, and that's why I'm a big fan of OpVault, because it would actually complete this whole other half of the uh, security model that we currently don't have in Bitcoin at the protocol layer, uh, essentially such that you would be able to see that your funds had been compromised and you would be able to claw them back and put them into a new, you know, fresh, secure setup. Um, but since we don't have OpVault, the, the next best thing that we can do is put you into a, a setup where there are multiple keys and you are on a regular basis, you know, checking that those keys have not been compromised. So this is where uh, we have some concepts in CASA. Uh, one of them is called health checks. Basically, every six months, if you haven't used a key, we just send you a reminder, you know, hey, 
go you know sign this cryptographic message and prove that you still have control over that key and so you know that kind of is a forcing function to get people to go and, and check on perhaps some of the keys that are stored in locations that are harder to access uh, that they don't go to very frequently just making sure that you know they haven't suffered from physical attack physical theft uh, environmental damage uh, bit rot really any number of things that could go wrong where that that key is no longer usable for it really absolutely any reason and if you're checking in on a key and you find that you know it's gone or just not usable anymore then we have this other concept called the key compromise and key rotation uh, which is built in and basically that allows you just to uh, tap on the the key in the app and say hey this this key is compromised i need to replace it you then go get a hardware device of your choosing, uh, anything that we support, and you just set up that new hardware device and we, we walk you through essentially rotating your funds over from the old key set to the new key set. And the only difference will be you know that one key that was compromised and the rest of the keys remain the same. Right. Okay, that's uh, that's fantastic. Um, what what has been what what kind of data do you maybe give us a little bit of an insight into whether people actually do rotate their keys, like or at least not rotate them, but like do they actually do the health checks? How often do they do it? You know, like do people kind of like are, do people get lazy around this issue, um, or are they fairly you know like responsible with it? Yeah, that's actually uh, something I would inter be interested in knowing more. Um, I, I do know anecdotally that definitely people are lazy about it. Uh, you know, we, we have you know clients who you know ask us, "Hey, I'm getting this notification. What should I do about it? Like, how, how worried should I be?" Type of thing. Uh, this is some ongoing discussions. Like, I I think that we probably could be pushier about it. Um, because we, we have certainly had cases where people ignored those notifications for several years. And then when they finally got around to it, they discovered that, you know, maybe multiple of their devices have, uh, stopped being reliable. Usually it's just a result of the firmware being really, really out of date. Um, but of course, any number of things can go wrong. So, you know, we, we try to find this happy medium, of course, once again, this trade-off between convenience and security. And you know, when you're in a multi-signature setup, you know, there is more complexity. And the, the way that I see it is that you should not think of it as a set it and forget it type of architecture. It is it is, it's kind of like a, a living organism and you need to make sure that the heartbeat is still there every once in a while. You, you need to make sure that it's, it's still alive. Um, you know, otherwise you can still get into a situation where you, you go too long and then you, you try to spend your money and you discover that uh, too many things have gone wrong with your keys. So I think incentivizing people more on, on that side of things is going to be a, 
a path, you know, room for future improvements of, of getting people to, to actually put in the work. You know, you, you would think that the incentives are there because, you know, in, in many cases, people basically have their life savings stored in these things. But it's, it's kind of like uh, what I said earlier is, you know, data backups, for example, it's very hard to get people to do data backups, even technical people, because it's just, it's a excruciatingly boring, you know, tedious, monotonous task. And, you know, the same is true if you need to go travel to one of your keys just so that you can tap on a button a few times to make sure that the, the key material is still there and that the device is still functioning and so on and so forth. So uh, it's definitely room for improvement. Yeah, that's that's definitely interesting. And I've, I've, I definitely recognize that, that feeling of like, ah, I'll do it later. <laughs> Twitter is more interesting right now than than going and, and, and digging up this, this, this device or whatever. But um, yeah, and, and so, okay, so that's on the health checks. And then on, on the key compromise issue, I mean, that, that, that's, I think, over time, the more I think about it, the more, you know, it seems like one of the core principles of, of you know, self-custody is like, if you have any reason to think that your key has been compromised, even to the degree, like maybe you lose your phone or you lose your 12 words, you know, on the single SIG issue, like immediately you got to move it to a new wallet. Because one of the, one of the big, one of the ones that I've seen a lot um, is uh, people will like, they'll 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 get like a twelve word seed from a from a crypto wallet, right? Like something like Exodus, for example, which is a great wallet, I think, in general, right? And then they'll they'll grab those twelve words and then import them into their laptop and then their desktop and then they'll import them into a bunch of computers and then. Of course, one of them gets compromised and then that seed has been compromised and they're like, well, but I have my backup or whatever. They don't realize that they that seed is no longer functional. They actually literally have to move all their assets to a new set of public keys. And so, you know, even if like their maybe their phone gets they lose their laptop and then it takes three days for the hacker to get to their seed. Like if you have any reason to think you're compromised, you got to basically move your coins and uh, and and with single sig, it literally means moving all your coins. Whereas with multi sig, you can actually well, I guess you will have to sign a transaction and rotate your keys to a new multi sig, right? So you still have to. Um... Yeah, though you know this is a kind of an interesting related point is there's single signature wallets already irk me enough, but I think the extreme uh, end of of sort of concentration of, of single points of failure is the people who use, you know, one of the, the wallets, you know, like Exodus, for example, or you, you mentioned Coinomy earlier. Uh, and essentially they have all of their different tokens and assets all in, in one place, all secured by the same set of keys. Like that is like the ultimate single point of failure. And as you mentioned, of course, you, you, you start, uh, copying and pasting that data around into other pieces of software, it's it's actually kind of analogous to you know credit card fraud. Of um, the more merchants that you deal with and give your credit card info to, the more likely it is that one of them will be compromised or will have a skimmer or something. And and you know, it doesn't matter which one of them. It's just like every time you interact with a new one. You're you're handing your private keys to them essentially, and you're you're trusting them with it. So it's the same type of thing with uh, 
you know, reusing private keys across multiple different wallet software. Yeah, like I imagine they, they'll, it's some probably something like this, you know, they'll hear about some exciting new uh, ICO or whatever the, the, the flavor of, 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 of uh, crap coin it is this, this time around. And then they'll, they'll go in like download trust wallet, right? And they'll get the 12 words and then they'll realize that it's on Ethereum on layer five, you know, and then they're like, okay, well, I guess I got to use MetaMask, right? And so MetaMask will be like, wait, do you want a new wallet? It's like, well, a new wallet doesn't have my coin. So they'll import their seed. So now their seed is on trust wallet and on MetaMask and uh, on two devices, right? And uh, and this is probably how it just snowballs slowly out of control. And they don't, you know, they, this is why hardware wallets are so interesting and so powerful because, you know, it at least isolates you from that kind of shenanigans, right? Like we saw the trust wallet extension uh, hack recently. Uh, that was bad, right? And uh, who knows what happens there? You know, those those extensions are pretty sketchy, but um, <sighs> fun. Um. Let's let's get into uh, inheritance, right? So, okay, you've got your multisig, your you know deep hodl, your Bitcoin OG at this point. Uh, you're gonna be rich, you know, multi generational wealth if you're not rich already. But you want to make sure your kids get can get access if and only if you get hit by a truck, um, you know, in thirty years. Um, how do you guys? manage inheritance because inheritance i mean the 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 bible of of crypto inheritance was uh pamela morgan's so crypto asset inheritance book which i think is still very strong and people should go ahead and buy that off amazon if if you're interested in this topic but uh it's still like when she wrote that book you know it's like 2018 and at least the version that i have and it was still uh you know that the, the wallets were not where we were at we're at today i don't think casa existed yet and um, and her processes were very manual and and sort of uh, paper based, right? Um, where are we today with inheritance? Um, hopefully, we've advanced a little bit more. Um, how do you guys deal with it? Yeah, and so you know, the really cool thing about multisig is that we finally have the ability to walk this very fine line. And that line being that, you know, when you're doing self-custody, you want your setup to be such that you and only you have access to the money. But then if you want inheritance, you want this, sort of switch to flip when you die that changes the security model of your money so that now you know some you know predetermined set of of beneficiaries and executors have access to it and you know often a lot of people have gone down the path of saying oh you know, we need to do some sort of like smart contract or we need to have some sort of dead man switch or, you know, they're, they're trying to architect some fancy technical thing that usually ends up running into the Oracle problem, which is essentially, you know, garbage in, garbage out on any of these networks. Um, there's there's no way to like programmatically know whether or not a human being is alive or deceased. So the short version is that you know the authentication procedures 
that should be in place around inheritance, they do need to be manual. They do need to require humans to verify the the death of you know the the owner of a, a given wallet, and then you know institute whatever processes have been put in place. Now, you know, the reason why I say multisig is is innovative here, and it lets us walk this fine line is that the way that we achieve that is by uh, putting a, a threshold of, you know, spending threshold of keys in positions such that they can be accessed through an inheritance process. And, you know, more practically, some examples of that would be that, you know, CASA holds a key, for example. So, you know, we can... Um, verify if someone has passed and we are, you know, we're given the, the death certificate that, that we can verify with the local jurisdiction that is, that's valid. And we can then you know, process a signature request for our key. Uh, you can place keys in other uh, custodians. Uh, usually we recommend people put one key in a, a safety deposit box now, that could be a bank, that could be a private uh, service, but basically uh, some other physical custodian that allows you to list beneficiaries on you know, the access to that box. So once again, you know, that key would be accessible to you while you're alive, but if someone other than you showed up, they would have to hop through the authentication procedures to go through the uh, sort of beneficiary process to access the the contents of that box and then of course you can also you know you can potentially onboard other friends family attorneys so on and so forth but you know the short version is it is it needs to be a human-based uh process uh for you know ensuring the security of those keys but the you know the reason why this was maybe not completely impossible, but a lot harder to do before multi-sig is that if you had a single signature setup, yeah, you could put that in a safety deposit box and it has, you know, beneficiaries listed on it. But all of a sudden that becomes a single point of failure because a safety deposit box in and of itself is actually not completely secure. Uh, there is precedent for safety deposit boxes being opened by malicious employees, by law enforcement, or even by like the the company itself, uh, just like shutting down or going out of business and you're not telling people. Um, so you know, safety deposit box has never really been foolproof, uh, at least for you know the security of a, a single signature setup. But you know now, you know if you have your keys distributed around. You don't have to worry about something going wrong with the safety deposit box uh, because, as we already covered, if that did happen, no sweat. You just mark that key as compromised and you you go set up a new key and, and put it somewhere else that has not been compromised. So would this work with the, with the 305 diamond package uh, where, let's say, I don't know, you have one key in your phone you know, a couple of hardware wallets here and there, and then you guys have one of the keys and then the last one would be in a, in a, um, in, in, in some sort of, uh, 
legally protected vault, you know, that people would have to, you know, jump through a few hoops to get to? Or what, what, how does the distribution of the keys look like? What are the numbers? What are the, what's the multi-sig range? Right. Uh, so generally the people who are doing this, it's, they're usually, usually using our three of five setup. We also have a three of six setup, though that's less frequently used. That's usually for people who, uh, want to either onboard people like uh, attorneys or possibly employees. Um, now, it's possible to do sort of a do-it-yourself uh, setup with the, the two of three, but it's not something that we really officially support as inheritance. But even within the three of five, uh, there's no single cookie cutter template for this and this is part of the reason why our premium tier offerings are so much more expensive it's not because you know the software is more expensive for us to develop and deliver to people it's because you're literally spending a lot more time on the phone with us essentially doing consulting to you know decide exactly how you want to do your inheritance setup and you know for example uh, some people only really care about inheritance setups so in, in the case that they die. Uh, other people need to take it a step further and they need to, you know, maybe, maybe they have, uh, you know, they're, they have a spouse and they have children and they also want to account for the edge case where, say, maybe they and their spouse are, you know, in a fatal car accident and both of their children survive. You know, that can get a little bit trickier. Um, because, for example, one thing that we do see uh, happen more commonly, we, um, we have the ability for, you know, you, you and your spouse could essentially uh, share and, like, clone the mobile key. Um, you can both have access to that. So, you know, in that case, if, if you pass and your spouse is still around, uh, they can access the mobile key. They can, you know, go to the safety deposit box. Maybe they even have access to one of the other keys in like a safe at your house. You know, the, it's a multivariate problem and, uh, and there is no one single solution. But the, the short version that, you know, comes down to is that you ensure that you have a, a threshold of keys that will be accessible um, by your executors of your estate and, you, know, you can get pretty creative with exactly how you do that. Right on, right on. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I think um, I I can't think of another company that's that's doing that's doing providing this service. Um, and if they are, I don't think they're doing it kind of at the level that you you guys are doing it because you know multisig is a big promise, right? It's a big promise of Bitcoin. I think it 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 does solve a variety of problems. Um, and you know, I, I wonder that this kind of takes us to the next, I guess, the cutting edge of of Bitcoin security. Uh, there's a variety of wallets that are kind of being developed, you know, very much on the cutting edge that are kind of playing with this concept of uh, kind of like a community uh, huddle or let's say something like Fediment where custody is technically centralized, but maybe we can enforce some rules around what kind of spending uh, conditions those funds can move on, right? Um, I'm not too familiar with the, the details of these kind of cutting edge technologies. Maybe you are. I know you mentioned um, UpVault. Um, where, where do you see like 
five years out, you know, where, where, where could we go, right? Let's say we're in a world of high fees where, where Bitcoin, you know, transactions are a hundred bucks on average, right? Or something like that. And everybody's on, on, you know, on lightning, right? So now we're dealing with lightning level security. Um, how do you see that side of things? You know, are we, you know, I, mean, I know I just asked two very big questions, so feel free to like navigate or however you like, but like, you know, community enforcement, right? Like I, I, maybe I trust my brother enough with a certain amount of power over, over my huddle, or maybe my family trusts me as the, as the local familial, um, Bitcoin nerd, and then they decide that they want to give me a key to their multi-sig or to, or to their uh, Fetty, you know, vault or whatever. Um, do you have any thoughts on how, how that might develop? Right. This could go a number of different ways. Uh, but one thing that I'm interested in, you know, aside from Op Vault, because we don't know when or if that will become available, um, but there is a very large design space that has not been explored yet with Bitcoin scripting and, you know, Taproot and, uh, you know, TapScript itself have not really been utilized that much yet. And there's a number of interesting things that you can do of, you know, creating different escape hatches, if you will, uh, you know, ways of, of getting out of uh, situations where you could essentially start collaborating with other people. Um, I do hope that we'll start seeing more kind of like multi-institution custody, um, if that's even a word. But this is where I think some of the lines are going to get blurred between self-custody and third-party custody. And it's, it's definitely going to be interesting to see how it falls out on the regulatory side of things. But the, you know, there are some interesting questions to be answered around um, you know, how does the law view ownership of an asset where no entity has the unilateral ability to spend or uh, to block spending of the asset. And by that, I mean, you know, what if you're in a multi-sig setup where you have one or two keys, say it's a three of five, you have one or two keys, and then say, you know, the rest of the keys in your key set are each held by completely different people or institutions that uh, that could get interesting you know you're really you're you're distributing trust even further and you can get to the point where you know you, in a sense you're distributing more of the trust away from yourself you know this could work well for the people who don't trust themselves to do self custody uh, maybe you know, right now it sucks that a lot of people just throw up their hands and are like, I'll just let Coinbase handle everything or I'll just let Binance handle everything. Um, you know, that's a single point of failure. That makes me cringe. I would, <laughs> while it's, you know, I, I would still push for pure self-custody, I would still feel better 
if someone was in a setup where you know they had a key and Coinbase had a key and Binance had a key, for example, it's just just distributing the trust more uh, so that you know it, collusion is less likely, but you know catastrophic failure is far less likely just because the keys are spread out. Um, you know, this starts going down a, a sort of deeper rabbit hole around reputation. But the point being that, you know, you can spread your keys out amongst a number of of reputable providers and they can't rug you. That's that's really what we're going for. It can get even more complicated as we're seeing, um, you know, many script uh, technology and the tooling around that being developed out. So that, you know, for example, I, I've talked about uh, degrading multisig for a number of years. Um, what if you, you know, have your two of three or your three of five set up and, you know, that's kind of your happy path for spending. But now, thanks to the magic of TapScript, you can start adding in a number of um, alternative spending paths that are time locked. So, you know, you could say, you know, this is my normal multi-sig setup, but if a year passes or if several years pass and the funds haven't moved, then, you know, maybe that is because I've uh, lost a spending threshold of keys and I've, I've essentially gotten locked out of my own multi-sig. Well, if you have been, uh, smart enough to you know, plan ahead of time and you've created alternative spending paths, you can say, okay, if that really long period of time has gone by, now allow the funds to be spent with some completely different set of keys. Now, of course, we start going down a completely different rabbit hole here. You know, Maybe that's a different set of keys that you yourself are holding and have distributed around in sort of emergency backup situations. Or maybe they are what I mentioned earlier, a kind of um, distributed multi-institutional set of keys. So this is what I've been thinking about more uh, recently because the tooling is starting to get there for us to actually implement this stuff and make it more practical. Um, Unfortunately, we're not yet really at the point where we have sort of system-wide compatibility uh, so that this is user-friendly for people to do. And it will also involve a fair amount of experimentation. And so what I do expect to happen, uh, much like with what has happened, like with Ethereum and smart contracts, you know, for the first several years of that, it was a complete shit show. There was no guidelines and best practices. And so uh, the, vast majority of people would, would write smart contracts that had vulnerabilities. And um, over time, you develop those best practices, you develop more tools and sort of verifiability and sanity checks and stuff. So I, I would expect that, you know, what what will happen is we'll see a lot of experimentation and people creating all types of weird conditions. And then as the years go by, we'll figure out, oh, that was actually not a great idea because of X, Y, or Z. And we'll probably settle on, you know, a handful of fairly well understood uh, kind of templates, if you will, uh, for 
self custody models and and ways of making them uh, more resilient. Yeah, yeah, that sounds that sounds um, sounds like that's that's probably how it's going to play out, you know. And and in a, in that sense, the the wild experimentation of Ethereum does kind of inform us about how things might play out in the future in Bitcoin. Um, I mean, as a, as a libertarian, I I I have this fantasy of, let's say, a kind of civil society, you know, like a societal huddle, right, where people choose all these different kind of civil contracts of self-custody, and we build this sort of, you know, this mesh of security where, yeah, you don't have a very any single point of failure or any obvious single point of failure, um, and where where we're also not standing exactly on our own island, like maybe you know, I think the the, the multi sig templates that you guys have created are very strong, and they're probably going to be one of those templates that uh, that stand throughout time. Um, I certainly uh, I'm a big fan of it, but uh, yeah, like I do wonder where we're going to go, especially in a lightning world where custody itself, like it's not obvious to me what self custody is in a cell in a lightning world, right? Like you're in a two of two multi-sig with a time lock. Uh, who controls that? Who owns that? What are, how do you define that as, you know, cost? How do you define the custody of that? It really does blur the lines. Um, so yeah, maybe you can talk to us a little bit about that. Like the two of two multi-sig and the lightning side of things. And uh, I think after that, we can open it to, to the audience. We've had a great conversation. Um, and I think we kind of covered a, a, a wide, the wide range of self-custody, which is uh, quite a feat. Uh, so thank you for that. Yeah, you know, uh, it's, it becomes less of a, a sort of static question of who has custody. And whenever you're creating a dynamic system, and by dynamic, I, I really mean a system that can change over time due to any variables. Then, as you said, the, the sort of the lines of custody get blurred. Um, so, you know, lightning works primarily due to game theory and incentives. And, um, you know, not only are there various timeout issues of, you know, if you're not paying attention for several weeks, then your counter counterparty could screw you. Uh, there are other issues of, you know, if you're sending extremely tiny payments, for example, and the on-chain uh, fee environment is fairly high, then the sort of game theory and, and incentives can make it such that uh, you could get screwed out of some of those micropayments as well. And you know, this is just another rabbit hole that you can start to go down. Yeah, I have a question uh, that's a little bit off, let's say off topic. Um, where are you at with artificial intelligence? And um, in particular, um, the identity issue that's kind of coming up, right? All these bots, very, very, very conversational and chatty bots that are difficult to distinguish from uh, conversational chatty humans. Um, do you, you know, are, is Casa going to be developing an identity offering, uh, some sort of cryptographic authentication to identity? Like, what, what do you see that side of things? Uh, because it does seem like there's a, a great, they call it the, the deep, um, the great flood or the digital flood, the deep fake flood. 
you know, where it, it seems likely that we're going to get these impersonator bots becoming very sharp and very convincing. And it's a whole new era of phishing schemes. And the only solution might be cryptographic uh, authentication of identity. Um, so, yeah, where, where are you at with that? Yeah, so, you know, there's three major types of authentication. You know, something you have, something you know, something you are. And uh, the AI stuff definitely weakens the uh, something you are aspect. Um, usually something you are uh, comes down to sort of biometrics. And you know, biomet- biometrics in general is uh, a pretty sub-optimal form of authentication because you can't rotate those credentials. So if they get compromised once, you're screwed for the rest of your life. Uh, the biometrics can be helpful as a sort of additional factor of authentication. But like we've been seeing, especially with the deep fakes as well, um, we're, we're at a point in time now where what's happening is that the ability for you to believe what you see and hear is being degraded. You know, it used to be for the first several decades of the internet, even though, you know, there'd be a lot of, uh, you know, misinformation and and disinformation. um, You know, if, at least if you were able to like see and, and talk to people through the internet, you could still rely upon that as being, you know, a real person and, you know, real information that isn't being made up by a machine. But now, you know, we, we can't even really believe what we're seeing and hearing anymore because the machines are getting to the point where they're going to be able to construct, you know, entire realities that are indistinguishable uh, for humans. Uh, this is going to get even crazier, I think, you know, as virtual reality and augmented reality and, uh, you know, especially if, if technology is like Neuralink uh, come along and people start literally, you know, jacking their their brainstem into the internet. Uh, it's going to be some pretty crazy experiences, and you're kind of like Ready Player One slash Snow Crash uh, style stuff, where like the hackers may literally be compromising your brain and what you see and hear and believe. So. Uh, you know, this is something, it's it's a dynamic environment that we're, we're staying on top of. As usual, you know, CASA does not want to implement any novel solutions ourselves. Rather, we want to continue to remain apprised of what all of the tooling is that is being developed and, and is being made available. And really, like, our, our bread and butter is to... To look out and you know, survey the landscape of technology and find the the technologies that exist that are highly promising but are still way too difficult for the average average person to actually utilize. So, you know, my 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 take on this really ever since I started working on Bitcoin stuff in 2015, my my mission was never to you know, focus on Bitcoin. My, my mission since then has been to use my skills as a technologist to help individuals empower themselves. And it just so happens that, you know, working on Bitcoin was one of the most straightforward ways to do that. 
but you know there's going to be plenty of other you know cryptographically enabled technologies that also let people empower themselves in other ways so identity of course is is going to be one of those and you know we have yet to really see i think a leader emerge from the pack there's a number of different projects that are trying to solve that if we see one that we we think is far superior and is gaining traction then you know that's what we're going to go with but you know for example one of the biggest identity technologies that's out there right now is worldcoin and uh i'm sure that if we integrated worldcoin we would get a lot of flack and uh I, I you know i'm not even saying that it's something that i would want to implement obviously there's a lot of really uh, terrible aspects to Worldcoin and the sort of biometrics aspect of it. But, um, you know, I have talked to some of the people at Worldcoin uh, about, you know, their perspective on things. And they are, you know, they are trying to solve some real problems. And they recognize that AI and identity is going to continue to become a big thing. Uh, I may not completely agree with their solution to it, but I certainly agree that the problems that they've outlined uh, are real and need to be addressed. Yeah, it's such a thorny problem because, um, you know, again, like that that conspiracy uh, theorizing part of my brain goes like, well, this is clearly a problem reaction solution thing. And so the problem is AI, the reaction is, oh my God, everything's fake on the internet. The solution is uh, KYC all the humans, right? And I don't, re I really don't like this KYC all the humans feature because you know if we've seen any big revelations against power and their dark agendas, which do happen at times, they've come from anonymous sources that they needed to remain anonymous for long enough for the data to get through and out into the world. So again, Snowden for the two weeks that or like two days that he was anonymous. And then, uh, of course, Julian Assange and all the work that he did, you know, it, it's a miracle that Satoshi uh, remains anonymous. Uh, and that's a whole other rabbit hole. But, um, you know, is there a path to uh, survive the deep fake flood without uh, KYC seeing all the humans? Like, do you see a path to that? Well, I mean, part of the problem is also... The, the sort of underlying question of what is identity and reputation. And so, you know, I reject the premise that identity needs to be a sort of one-to-one, -one, uh, you know, human body mapping, a sort of government-issued identity. Uh, I, I really think that people should have the flexibility to create different identities for different things and to, you know, not necessarily have to associate all of their different activities and all of the different aspects of their lives uh, sort of together as one uh, single entity. And, and so the, you know, it may, it may, the question may not even be correct. Like we, Worrying about whether someone that you're interacting with and whether or not they're human or AI, in many cases, that may be irrelevant. Um, what's more important is that you know that you are interacting with the identity that you believe that you're interacting with. So I don't see any reason why, you know, AIs couldn't have and manage their own identities and reputations and so on and so forth. 
uh, all I think what we should really be focusing on more is just uh, preventing AIs from being able to spoof themselves as as other entities. And so there's certainly ways around that. It just means we can no longer we can no longer just rely on kind of unauthenticated data streams that we're receiving, AKA, you know, we can no longer rely upon simple text or video or audio and consider that to be a form of authentication. And of course, this is where private keys and cryptography will come in and play a big role. Yeah. It seems like the, whatever PGP brought into the world, um, might be really the only solution here. And hopefully web of trust can actually make a comeback Obviously, technology that might be a little bit easier to use than PGP or just integrated into things like Twitter and so on, which to some degree does seem to be like that's Elon Musk's vision to make Twitter the everything app or whatever, whatever that means. It probably will mean identity and authentication. Um, and uh, yeah, that's that's going to be that's going to be fun. Uh, are we going to see a Jameson or a Lop.ai uh, AI bot in, in the near future? I don't know. Uh, you know, I think it. It, uh, I think I saw a project recently that was trying to do something like that, but for Bitcoin in general. And I would certainly love to you know, have an AI bot that has basically ingested every educational resource that I have linked from my website. There's like 1,500 different websites uh, that it links to. Uh, if, you know, if we can get something to ingest all of that content and and sort of, you know, be as you say the sort of the lop ai expert where people can basically talk to me in the digital form but i can scale myself out that's really what i've been trying to do for the past several years you know with the website it was an entirely self-serving effort because i got tired of having to go find resources you know getting the same questions over and over again having to give people the same answers over and over again and so I compiled all that information so that I could just send people, you know, one link, say, you know, go, you know, read, read all of the, the things that I have in this particular section. Um, but yeah, having an AI of me or of, you know, of all of those resources that you could easily query, I think would really uh, take that to the next level. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely bullish on that, that side of the, the AI world um so cool very cool so if, if somebody made a third party project of lop.net or lop.ai would you be cool with that or what should we just dm you because uh, i may or may not be plotting to create such a thing anyway <laughs> yeah uh well you know read the footer of every page on my website um i claim no intellectual property wonderful fantastic yeah, I think I think that would be a really interesting product. Um, one question that I had gotten from from a, a friend of mine was, um, "What do you think about Green Wallet and Jade's um, two of two time locked multi sig scheme?" Uh, he was complaining that once he realized what it was, he said that they could potentially block you from spending your money for a while, and that it was kind of sketchy, and that he turned it off immediately. Do you think there's any value to these kind of like on chain? you know, security two of two time lock multi-sig schemes, you know, that that have nothing to do with lighting specifically. Right. You know, I mean, they are trying to eliminate single points of failure. Uh, 
I just I, I do fundamentally have a problem with two of two when it comes to anything. You know, as we've said a few times today, you know, twenty fifth word passphrase also ends up creating a two of two setup. So you you end up finding two of two setups uh, in a number of different places in the space, and it's not always obvious that you're putting yourself into a more uh, fragile position. So, you know, that's why they have to offer that uh, that time lock and sort of escape recovery ability because it does, it actually creates a single point of failure. Um, the, the whole issue of, of doing time locks, uh, that's something I've given a few talks about and it's something that's also on my mind a lot recently, you know, thinking about mini script and tap script and uh, creating all of these alternative spending paths that will have time locks associated with them. Um, that's going to create a number of sort of compatibility issues and sort of ongoing maintenance issues for wallets. Uh, we've already talked about how, you know, with Casas Multisig, we, we, we view it as more of a, uh, a, a living type of setup where you, you need to be checking on it every once in a while, make sure that everything is healthy. And that's going to become even more true as we implement these more complex, you know, time locking spending conditions, because basically in order for you to be able to, to implement any sort of time locking um, for your funds, like for alternative spending paths, then that means that you're, you're adding more uh, dynamicism to your architecture and it, it basically means that if you don't change your UTXOs and those time locks expire, then the security model of your funds changes. So you, you, you actually need to get to a point where you are you know, more frequently staying on top of the exact state of your wallet. And you know, as these time locks get passed, you need to rotate those funds to new UTXOs that have you know, updated spending conditions around them. So obviously this is adding more complexity and uh, we're currently in the sort of research and development phase of like, how do we allow people to leverage this functionality, but do it in a way so that, you know, they're not going to be shooting themselves in the foot. They're not going to be, uh, accidentally degrading their security due to laziness, which we have certainly seen there is an abundance of. <laughs> yep, the, the laziest path that works tends to be the one that people take. Um, all right. Um, cool. So anybody have any more questions? It's been a great show. We've gone uh, pretty deep, I think, um, really kind of scratching some of the edges of self-custody i think uh, again like we're going to be publishing uh both of these uh conversations with love today the q a and the earlier conversation at huangout.com so go sign up to the two emails and that way you'll make sure to get it on your inbox and it'll also show up on your podcasting app and so you can listen to it on podcast um and check out bitcoinnews.com they have uh a new part uh part two of their interview with michael sailor in europe uh, out now and uh, it's a pretty solid show michael Saylor is a fascinating cat so uh do check that out and uh we also have i think there's an announcement with bitcoin racing 
Uh, they're doing some sort of early bird tickets for their sim racing event in London. I believe that's London, UK, not London, Canada. So that's a good A. And uh, yeah, so check that out. That's pinned on the nest. And um, I mean, unless anybody else has any more questions, I think that uh, we can call the show a wrap. It's been really good to have you, Jameson. Hopefully you you enjoyed the show and uh, can join us some other time when there's something new to cover. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. Thank you for listening to the show. If you made it all the way here, you were a true fan and a true OG. This is not the kind of conversation that's going to get mass attention, but it is the kind of conversation that the ones that will be here in a long time, that'll be here in 10 years, will probably have listened to because this conversation, like many others that we have on the Juan Galt Show and in this Bitcoin News Twitter Spaces collaboration, are trying to scratch the edges of the industry while also covering the most important news. Uh, so thank you for being a part of it. And uh, I hope you'll join us on the next one. We are doing these shows every week on Twitter Spaces. You can go to the Bitcoin News Twitter handle or look for me and my tweets, as well as sign up at huangalt.com to make sure you get an email notification when the shows come and ahead of time so you can hit a reminder. Finally, uh, I have been building an archive of my work at huangal.com as well as publishing new articles, touching the most important topics, I think, of our era. This is bigger than Bitcoin. It's uh, macro. It is romance and love and relationships. It is spirituality. And these are long-form articles, not the kind of short-term content that most people are used to. And honestly, you're probably going to want to read them in a couple of sit-downs. Um, maybe I'll split them up into pieces, but um, there's a lot more to say, and um, I am I'm very proud of them. I think we have some very, very good work there. So I hope you'll check that out and uh, follow me in this journey to try and influence the future of humanity in, uh, into a positive, optimistic, and harmonious future, which integrates not just, let's say, the wisdom of the past, but also the technologies of the future. So thank you again for listening in, and I will see you on the next one.